Well, parents, it's great to have you with us this morning. You can turn to Romans chapter 10. That's where we are, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is all about excuses. Excuses are basic to human nature. When we get caught, when we fail in some way, human nature is to grasp for any excuse out there, even if it's ridiculous. I'll give you some examples. There's some ridiculous excuses that have been given when people were pulled over for speeding. Here are some real excuses that people use to try to get out of a speeding ticket. Um, One of the most common, multiple police officers cited this one. They pulled someone over for speeding, and the person said, well, officer, I could not help it because I was going downhill. Now, sadly, just in case you weren't aware, gravity is not an excuse for speeding. That, that one won't hold up. Uh, Dave Hoffman, a sergeant with the Naperville, Illinois Police Department, shares this story. He, he saw a vehicle run right through a, a red light, just blow through it. So he turns on his lights and he pulls her over and he asks the driver, why did you do that? And she says, um, well, officer, I, I just got my brakes fixed and it was really expensive and I did not want to wear them out. That excuse also did not work. Brakes are meant to be used, not saved. Uh, Another example, James Mathias, Elnora, Indiana, police officer, observed a truck blasting through town doing 72 and a 45. And so he turns on his lights and he begins to follow and the guy flees. He just takes off. Um, So the police chase him for seven miles. Another police officer comes. They get the guy pulled over. And the guy says, I'm so sorry, officer. I did not realize you were back there because I've had a lot to drink. (laughs) That's really ineffective excuse. That did not work out well for that particular individual. I had a friend in high school who had a sports car. And one night he was out with some friends driving way too fast on the interstate. And a policeman observed this and began to follow, but didn't turn on his emergency lights. He wanted to see how fast would my friend go, and and the answer was very fast, well up in the triple digits, and the officer at some point had seen enough, flashed his lights, pulled him over, and my friend knows, man, I'm toast. This is not get a ticket kind of speeding. This is go to jail, lose your license kind of speeding. He knows he has no hope, and so grasping at straws, he offers the excuse, well, officer, I thought you wanted to race. Now, here's the crazy part. The officer laughed and let him off. I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. He got off. I don't recommend that excuse. I don't think that's going to have a high probability of success. Best excuse I've ever heard. Save this one for last. A really good friend of my wife and I got pulled over for speeding and said to the officer, I am lactose intolerant and I just drank some milk. And if I don't get to a bathroom fast, this is going to get ugly. <laughs> The officer let him off, and to my friend's credit, he is lactose intolerant. He really was about to lose it. And so that's like the one case I can think of where an excuse was valid. All the rest, no. When we get caught for something, when we do something wrong, when we fail, human nature is to give an excuse. That's what we do. We, We grasp for an excuse. Whether it's a, a minor thing like speeding or a major thing like a breakdown of a, of a relationship or a marriage or something like that. When we get caught, when we fail, human nature is to find someone or something else to blame. We look for excuses to absolve ourselves of guilt. Well, Romans chapter 10 is all about excuses. And just to refresh your memory, Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11 are about a relationship that has gone south. The relationship between God and his Old Testament people, Israel. 
the Israelites who, who were God's people in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is written about them. Uh, the Israelites who can count among their number Jesus and Peter and Paul. The whole early church was all Jews. By the time that the book of Romans was written, about 56 AD, the percentage of Jews in the church was very small. The vast majority of the Jewish nation was separated from God. The vast majority had rejected the gospel. And Paul laments over that. He summarizes that. He refreshes that for us at the beginning of our passage. He summarizes the problem, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 9. Look back at chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. The vast majority of Israelites had not come into the church. They had not embraced the gospel. They were not part of the family of God. And that reality presents a serious problem for Paul's theology in the book of Romans. Serious issue. You may recall at the end of chapter 8, Paul shared an incredible promise from God to his people. At the end of Romans 8, God says to his people, I will allow nothing to separate us, not even you, but that raises the question, then God, what about Israel? Israel was your people in the Old Testament, and now the vast majority of them are separated from you. So God, did you lie? Were you not strong enough, God, to keep your promise to the nation of Israel? God, what about Israel? The separation of the vast majority of Israelites from God when the New Testament was written and today seems to present a major objection to Paul's theology in Romans. It seems to call into question God's righteousness, God's faithfulness. And this is serious for us, not just for Jews, because if you couldn't count on God to keep his promises to his Old Testament people, the Jews, then how can we count on God to keep his promises to his New Testament people, us? This is all about the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God. Can you trust God? And so Paul takes Romans 9 through 11 to answer that question. He gives a three-part answer. Three-part answer to the question, why are the vast majority of Israelites separated from God? For those of you who were here last week, you may recall answer number one, first part of the answer, chapter nine, because God did not choose most Jews. That was the answer, chapter 9. It was all about that thorny thing called election. God did not choose, he did not elect the vast majority of Jews. That is why the vast majority of Jews are separated from God. Now, just to review what we said about election, here's how election works God, in eternity past, looked forward and saw humanity. And he saw that all human beings, without exception, would see him in creation and say, No. We would all choose freely to reject God, to run away from God towards the only place where God is not, which is hell. We would all freely choose that. That despite the fact that God gives all mercy. God gives mercy to all people. He sent his son to die for all people. God desires salvation for all people. He makes it available to all people. God gives mercy to all of humanity and yet all of humanity together says no and so election is God in eternity past looking and choosing particular individuals who are rebels who are running from him and grabbing hold of them and yanking them around so that they can finally see the truth of the gospel and be saved. That's election, mercy to all, over-the-top mercy to a few. 
grabbed, kicking and screaming, out of their choice to reject so that they can see the truth of the gospel. That's election. And Paul's point is God only elected a few of the Jews, a small remnant of the Jews, including Peter and Paul and all Jewish Christians. And to that remnant among the Jewish nation, God has been absolutely faithful. So God's faithfulness stands because he only ever chose a small number of the Jews. That's Paul's first answer in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 10, he provides the flip side of the coin. The second part of the answer, which seems to be the exact opposite in our section today, Paul will say, why are the vast majority of Jews separated from God? Because most Jews did not choose God. That's the theology we call human responsibility, free will. Why are most Jews separated from God? Because most Jews freely chose to reject God's offer of salvation. God made it available to them. Jesus died for them. God presented the gospel to them, and they freely chose to say no. Now, for those of you who are looking at this, you may say, well, wait a minute, Blake, those two statements contradict one another. You you can't have it both ways. They're separated either because God didn't choose them or because they didn't choose God. Paul says, no, it is both. He sets election and human responsibility right next to each other, side by side in Romans 9 and 10. To us, that raises all kinds of red flags. How can that be true? Theologians stand up. How, How can this possibly be true? Paul doesn't want us, though, to enter into theological debates about Romans 9 and 10. That's not what this is about. Paul's not trying to raise up a theological debate. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is trying to dismantle excuses. That's what Romans 10 is about. Not a theology debate, but dismantling of the excuses that people make for rejecting the gospel. That's where we're going to go today. Paul is going to dismantle, to silence the most common excuses that people give, whether Jews or Gentiles, for rejecting the gospel. Why do people say no to God? They make excuses. Paul is going to dismantle the three most common of those excuses, so I want to walk you through those. We get the first excuse, first most common excuse that people give for rejecting the gospel, starting in verse 31 of chapter 9. 31 of chapter 9, Paul is going to dismantle the excuse, well, Paul, we are good people. We are good people. This is the excuse of self-righteousness. But Paul, I'm a good person. Paul, I don't need a savior. I don't need salvation from God. I'm a good person. This is the person who views life as scales, a balance scale before God. And, and as long as you put enough good things on the good side of the scale to outweigh the bad things on the bad side of the scale, you're okay. Just be better than the average and you're good with God. I don't need a savior because I'm a good person. That was the Jew's most common excuse. It's actually probably the most common excuse people give in the world today. Okay, so how does Paul deal with this excuse? I don't need the gospel because I'm a good person. Good person. Here's what Paul does with it, starting in verse 31. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now notice, Paul says a lot of really positive things here about the Jews. The Jews know God. They know Yahweh, the one true God. They know him. And their knowledge isn't just academic, is it? Verse two, they have zeal for God. They have passion for the one true God. They're seeking righteousness with that God. They want to be right with him. And they're seeking that righteousness through his law, not through some other religion, but through God's own law. So lots of things in the Jews' favor. If life really was about scales, you would think, well, the Jews have it nailed. They've got a lot of things in the good column for them, but they have a problem. One really major problem, you can boil it down to one word, problem with pride. Pride. Verse three, they are seeking salvation, but in the wrong way, through prideful self-effort rather than through humble faith. Look again at verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And Paul says not knowing here, he's not talking about an innocent ignorance as if they simply were not aware of God's righteousness. No, this is willful blindness. They know who God is, but they say, I I don't want salvation from God. I'm covered. I don't need God's help. I'm good enough. It was the Jews' first and most central mistake. They believed that they could earn their salvation through the law. Verse 31 of chapter 9, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, literally a legal righteousness, righteousness with God based on adherence to the law. They thought they could earn God's approval by keeping the law, so they don't need salvation. They don't need God's help with that, so if you don't need salvation, you don't need a savior. So Jesus comes. God's son shows up. And he tells his brethren, the Jewish people, I have a gift for you. It's called salvation. I have deliverance to offer you. And what do they say? No, I'm good. I I don't need that from you. Thank you anyways. I'm good. I've got this whole law thing going for me. They reject God's gift in Jesus and send him to the cross. To use the language of Deuteronomy, which Paul quotes at the end of chapter 9, they stumble over the stumbling stone. God established Jesus as the foundation stone, the cornerstone of of all of the spiritual life. The person who trusts in that rock of Jesus will never be ashamed. He will never be disappointed. But if you do not trust in that rock, you will stumble, you will fall. And sadly, the vast majority of Israelites in Paul's day, as in our day, choose to stumble. They choose to say no. They choose to reject God's offer of a savior. And the sad irony that Paul points out to us is in their attempts to earn salvation through the law, they missed the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law, verse four of chapter 10, for Christ is the the end or the goal, the finish line of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is saying that in their attempts to run the marathon of the law, they don't look up and see that Jesus is at the finish line. All you have to do is say yes to Jesus and you are done. You have reached your goal. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The whole purpose of the Mosaic law, that huge section of the Old Testament, was to lead you to faith, to lead you to dependent trust upon God, to prepare you for Jesus so that when Jesus showed up, you would say yes 
That was the whole point of the law. That's the tragedy of Israel. They have missed the whole point of the thing. In their attempts to keep the law, they miss the center, the heart of it. And they still do today. I don't know if any of you have, have traveled to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem and you stay in a hotel in Jerusalem, um, if you're looking at the bank of elevators, you will notice that one elevator is different. It, is, it has a sign above it that says Shabbat elevator. What does that mean? Well, it means that on the Sabbath day, that elevator will automatically stop at every floor of the hotel on the way up and the way down. Why? So that as a good law-keeping Jew, you don't have to push a button. That's, that's how hard they work to keep the letter of the law. They're not even going to complete an electrical circuit on the Sabbath day. But do you think that's really what the law is about? You, you think the eternal God cares about whether you push a button or not? They've missed the heart of the law. It's about preparing you for Jesus, preparing you for faith. That's what the law was about. They missed it. Why? Because of pride. Because they assumed they were good enough. I can earn it. I can merit God's approval through my works. To the offer of the gospel, they offered the excuse, we're good people. We don't need that. Sadly, that's what the majority of humanity does today. If you asked just a a normal person on the street, just average American, if you asked them, if you were to die today and stand before God and he was to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? What is the most common answer you will hear? Because I'm a good person. In some form or fashion, they will point to their merit, to their works. I go to church every Sunday, or synagogue, or mosque. I give to the poor. I don't lie very much. I don't steal. I don't murder anybody. I'm better than most people. They'll point to themselves, to their works, to their efforts. That's the answer of every other religion out there. Why should God let me into heaven? Because I earned it. Because look at what I did. That is religion's answer. It is not God's answer. What is God's answer to the question? Why should I let you into my heaven? Because Jesus died for you. Because of what Jesus did. It has nothing to do with you, with what you do. It's a gift. Getting into heaven, having a relationship with God, eternal life, it is a gift to receive, not something to earn through your works. That's what grace is. Grace is receiving something good that you do not deserve. Jesus deserved it, but he gives it to you freely. I love that line. Religion says do, Jesus says done. It is finished. It is not something you earn. It is not something you merit. It is done. So the excuse, I'm good enough. No, you're not. That's not what this is about. It doesn't matter if you're a good person. What matters? That God gives you the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Just receive it. Quit trying to earn God's love. Just believe it's yours. Believe it's a gift freely given from God, earned by his son. So Paul has dismantled the first excuse. We're good people is not valid. Now he moves on to the second excuse. Second excuse that people often give for not accepting the gospel, the Jews' second excuse. Well, Paul, God expects too much of us. God expects too much of us. This whole Christianity thing is too hard. This whole Christianity thing, that's too much that God wants of us. I just can't go there, Paul. What is Paul going to do with that excuse, that the salvation by faith thing is too hard? Well, look with me starting in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that law. 
But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's answer, his, his dismantling of this excuse is very simple. He simply says, salvation by faith is easy. Salvation by faith isn't hard at all. Actually, what's hard is salvation by works. That's the point of verse five. That's where he starts. Verse 5, salvation by works is really hard. He quotes the book of Leviticus. Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, you live by what you do. You live if you practice the law. By practice, he means do it continually. Day in and day out, 24-7, you do the law. If you do it, then yes, you will live. Paul made that point back at the beginning of Romans. Romans 2-7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will receive eternal life. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. If you want to earn God's approval by keeping the law, okay, you have to persevere in doing good. You have to do good continually, unendingly, every day, every day for your entire life. You must practice the law. Oh, but there's bad news, Romans 3. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, and that leads to the conclusion, Romans three twenty: by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Salvation by works isn't just hard, it is impossible. You cannot do it. If you want to be justified by your works, okay, here's the standard, it is perfection, If you are not always perfect in following God, then you fail. Salvation by works is a dead-end street. So hard it is impossible. Paul contrasts that to salvation by faith. Salvation by faith is easy. Salvation by faith is incredibly easy. Verses 6 through 8. Paul quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Seems like really uh, hard to understand what Paul is doing with this whole ascending and descending thing, but his point is really, really simple. Verse six, if you want salvation, you don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to work your way up to heaven to get salvation from Christ. He's already come. The incarnation, he came from heaven to give it to you. He's already done the work. Verse seven, you don't have to move heaven and earth to get salvation. You don't have to do something supernatural. Jesus has already done it. It's called the resurrection. He did the most amazing thing possible. He conquered death. That's proof that he is offering salvation to you. That leads to the conclusion of verse eight. What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. What Paul is saying is that salvation by faith is available right now to everyone, right here, right now. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do something amazing for it. It's not waiting for you at the end of your life. Will you be good enough to get it? No, right here, today, right now, salvation by faith is available to you. 
It's available right now. And then Paul goes on. All you have to do is simply say yes to God. That's the point of verse nine, often quoted. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are not separate steps. Paul is just mirroring the parallelism, the literary parallelism in verse eight. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart following that two-part thing. He does confess and believe, same step. To confess is simply to agree with God that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that he is the son of God, that he is your master. Paul points that one out because that was the Jews' major stumbling block. This carpenter is the Lord? This, this kid from Nazareth is God? Seriously? Yes, yes, he is. You need to agree with God about that, that Jesus is his son. And you need to believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, I often wondered, why, why does he point to the resurrection and not to Jesus dying for our sins? That's kind of the essence of the gospel, right? That Jesus died for our sins. Why does he do that? Well, because by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, he includes all of it. The resurrection is God's proof that Jesus paid for your sins. Paul puts it in the negative in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is God's explanation point on Jesus' sacrifice. It's God saying, yes, I accept Jesus' death on your behalf. So Paul's point is, if you want eternal life, you don't have to work for it. All you have to do is simply say yes to God. Simply say, God, I agree. Jesus is your son who died for my sins and rose from the dead. You believe that, you have eternal life. It's yours. Not only does Paul say that all you have to do is believe, but finally, the end of our part of our passage, he says it's available equally to everyone, to Jew and Gentile alike. And he quotes Isaiah and Joel to make that point. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is ask God for it. Just say, God, I want salvation. I need eternal life from you. Just humble yourself to ask for God's gift and it's yours. That's all you have to do. This contrast between the way of works and the way of faith reminds me of repelling. After my freshman year at A&M, that summer I worked at a camp in the Texas Hill Country and I ran a repelling station and I noticed as I was helping kids down the cliff, there are two ways to repel down a cliff. There's the hard way and there's the easy way. This is the hard way. You do it on your own two feet. You get to the edge of the cliff and you rely upon your feet to walk yourself down that cliff. It's interesting. It was always the most athletic kids that chose the hard way. I'm athletic. I'm a pretty strong guy, pretty dexterous, pretty flexible. I'm just going to walk this thing down. Problem was... On our particular cliff, there was a cave halfway down. doesn't matter how athletic you are, you're not going to walk down the face of a cave. So invariably, the, the cliff would go inverted and those athletic guys would face plant into the rock. It was always a painful thing. I'm really glad this little girl's wearing a helmet because in about two minutes, she's really going to need it because that is the hard way down a cliff to try to do it on your own. That's the hard way. Here's the easy way. It's the way of faith. You get to the edge of the cliff and you say, you know what? I'm going to rely upon this rope to carry my weight. And you lean back. You, you lean way, way back. And, and once all of your weight is carried by the rope, it is easy to just cruise down that cliff. That's the easy way, the way of faith, the way that says, you know what? That rope can hold 6,000 pounds. It doesn't need my help. It doesn't need me to walk my way down this cliff. I just need to trust in the rope. So it is with salvation. All you got to do is trust in the rope.
Just trust in Jesus. Don't try to do it on your own. You don't need to. He doesn't need your help. Just rely upon him that he died for your sins and rose from the dead and it's yours. Eternal life is a gift received in faith. It's not too hard. It's the easiest thing in the world. Just receive it. Receive it in faith. So having dismantled the two most common excuses, Paul moves to the third and last one. Third and last excuse that people give for rejecting the gospel. Hear this one a lot. This is a common excuse. Well, maybe they're rejecting the gospel because they never heard. They never heard the gospel. Now, usually when this excuse is is given to me, usually it's given on behalf of someone else. It's the aborigine excuse. I can't accept the gospel. I, I can't believe in a God who would send to hell an aborigine who's never heard the gospel. That's, that's usually how it's framed. If God would condemn a person who never heard the gospel, I can't accept that. I can't believe that. How can that person be held responsible if they never heard the gospel? Okay, well, that's, that's a pretty good excuse. Let's look and see how Paul deals with that third and final excuse. Look, starting in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul begins by laying out four things that must be true for you to be held responsible. If God is going to hold you responsible for your choice, whether to embrace or reject the gospel, four things must be true. Paul presents them in reverse order, but in chronological order. Number one, God has to send a messenger. God has to send someone who can proclaim the truth you're to believe. Second, that messenger has to come and preach to you. He has to share that word from God. Third, you have to hear it. He has to preach it in a way that you can hear and understand. And then finally, fourth, you have to believe it. Now, of those four things that have to happen, what are you responsible for? Only number four. You got to believe. First three are other people's responsibilities. God and the messenger. God has to send. Messenger has to preach and do so in a way you can hear. If any of those three have not been satisfied, if God did not provide those first three things, those first three steps, then you are not responsible for your choice to reject the gospel. But that's not the case for Israel, is it? No, that's what Paul says in verse 16. He quotes Isaiah. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And this is really significant. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53, verse one. Anybody know Isaiah 53? What's that about? It's about the suffering servant is perhaps the most one of, if not the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. It is the clearest revelation in the Old Testament about Jesus, that Jesus would come and die for our sins. It's clearly revealed there. And Paul's point in quoting Isaiah is to say, well, to the Jewish people, wait a minute, all the first three conditions have been met. God sent a messenger. His name was Isaiah, pretty cool guy. 
That guy preached to you, and he preached to you in a way that you could hear it. In fact, he wrote it down, and by this time in history, by 56 AD, all good Jews had memorized that chapter of Scripture. You've memorized it. You've heard it. So all the first three conditions have been met. So Israel, why are you separated from God? Why did you not embrace his Messiah, who he told you ahead of time about in Isaiah 53? Because you chose not to believe. It was your choice, and so it's your responsibility. You were given the message. You were given it clearly. You were given it convincingly. You chose to say no. So you are responsible. Now that's a, a major conclusion. It's a significant thing that Paul is saying and he wants to, wants to drive that home. He wants to prove that. So he circles back around and he fleshes this out. Look with me starting in verse 17 and 18. Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, you have to hear the message to believe. But I say, surely they have not heard, have they? Indeed they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. Let me share the rest of verse 1 and 2 to you. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. What Paul is saying is, you heard about it in creation. God revealed himself to all of mankind in creation. He revealed that he exists, that he is good, that he is powerful. He proved that he is good through creation. Paul makes that same point, if you'll recall, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he said, For his, that is God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God revealed himself in creation. It's there for all to see. Now, this conviction in Romans 1, it is not about infants. It is not about those who are mentally incapacitated, who cannot see God about in creation. It's about all of us who can look in creation and see God there. And Paul's point is whether you're willing to admit it to yourself or not, you can see God. You see that God is good, that he is powerful. You see his love and his greatness displayed in creation. And so you are responsible to respond. You are responsible to respond to God's self-revelation in creation. That's what God holds you responsible for. Now, someone might say, wisely, someone might say, well, wait a minute, Blake. God's self-revelation in creation says nothing about Jesus. All it says is that God exists, he's good, he's powerful, maybe that he loves you, but it doesn't say anything about Jesus, and you can only be saved through faith in Jesus, so how can God hold you responsible if you never hear about Jesus? How do, what do we do with that? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us very clearly that if you respond affirmatively to what God has given you, he is always faithful to give you more. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. God does not hold out on people. God does not hide himself from people. If you respond to the revelation you have, God is always faithful to give you the rest. So back to the aborigine. The aborigine who's never heard the gospel, how can God hold him accountable? Well, according to the New Testament, if that aborigine wakes up one morning to a beautiful sunrise and says, wow, I, I see in this sunrise, uh, there's got to be a creator. Someone powerful made this and he must be good because it's beautiful and it's providing heat and warmth and light for me. I want to know that God. 
If the aborigine does that, then according to Jesus' words, God will do whatever it takes to get him the rest of the message. Whether it's sending a missionary or an angel or giving him a vision or dropping a Bible out of an airplane, God will do whatever it takes to provide the gospel to that man. God does not hold out on anyone. If you say yes to what God has given you, he will always give you more. God is a God of mercy and faithfulness, not a God who hides. And so, Paul is helping us understand every person has seen God in creation and is therefore responsible. Everyone has seen. Now, Paul goes further for the Jews. Not only had they seen God in creation, but they had seen God in this book. And the law and the prophets, God had revealed himself to the Jews. And he points out in verses 19 and 20, two quotes from the Old Testament. Verse 19, he goes back to Deuteronomy with Moses. Verse 20, he goes to Isaiah 65. And his point here is to say, guys, Israelites, God warned us. All the way back in the law, some 1,500 years ago, and then in the prophets, some 600 years ago, God warned us that if we chose to reject his good news, his gospel, he would move on to other people. He would give his gift of grace to someone else, the Gentiles. He warned us about this ahead of time. So God had warned the Jews, they had heard. Now in these quotes, there's kind of some subtle irony here, a a subtle little slam to the Israelites in these verses. Paul wants him to understand when God moves on from you guys, he's gonna move to the Gentiles who um, back in the ancient world compared to you guys, Gentiles are spiritual idiots. The Jews, they have the Old Testament. They have the covenants, the temple. They have all these great things from God. Gentiles have none of that. The Gentiles worship other gods. The Gentiles are lost in foolishness. And yet Paul says, if the Israelites reject the gospel, God will move on to the Gentiles and he will save them. He will deliver them through the gospel. And what Paul is doing is saying to the Jews, Jews, you cannot say that you did not understand. You cannot say that it was too hard because if God can save the dumb Gentiles, he can save you. You have no excuse. If the Gentiles can embrace the gospel, then surely the Jews can as well. So the Jews had heard in creation, in the law, and in the prophets. And that leads to the conclusion of verse 21. As for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. A Hebrew in this verse, this quote from Isaiah 65 too, it's really significant. Stretched out my hands. That's, that's the pose that a father takes to a son. I stretch out my hands to you to welcome you, to invite you into relationship with me, to enjoy my grace. It's about an invitation all day long for all of their history. Constantly, God has invited them to experience and enjoy his mercy. He has been nothing but merciful to Israel. And what have they done? Constantly, they have said no. Day after day, they have rejected his offer of mercy. The implication of that is very simple. No person will end up in hell because they were not elect. No person will end up in hell because they did not hear the gospel. Everyone has received nothing but mercy from God. And every person who chooses to reject that will be held responsible. There are no excuses. That's the point of Romans 10. There's no excuses at all. And so let's draw this to an application. What does Paul want us to do with these truths? Well, uh, the first and most important thing is what Paul doesn't want us to do with this. He doesn't want us to let Romans 9 and 10 turn into a huge theological debate. That's, That's not what this is about. Paul simply puts side by side God's election and our free will. I don't know how to reconcile those. 
I have no idea how you can say that the Israelites are separated from God because God did not choose them and because they did not choose God. How can those both be true? I haven't got a clue. That's okay. God just says believe. He doesn't say figure it out. He doesn't say reconcile it. He just says believe. It's a nine, it's in 10, side by side, just embrace them. Just embrace them. I know so many guys who get so caught up in this and wrestle with this and get into big debates about this. Well, it's good to study it. It's good to go deeper into it. But at the end of the day, simply say, okay, I believe. I can't reconcile it. I believe. I accept it. Both are true. My logic can't explain them. I can't tie it in a neat bow and walk out of here. No, I just have to embrace them. Now, at the end of the day, that shouldn't surprise us that we have to embrace something that we can't explain, something that is beyond us. After all, we're finite. We'll always be finite. Why should finite creatures expect to be able to fully explain an infinite God? If I could explain God fully, then he wouldn't be a very great God, would he? If I can explain him, then he's pretty small. So this should not surprise us that something like election and free will would be put side by side in the Bible without reconciliation, without explanation. Just believe it. Just take it. Don't get caught up in the theological controversy. Here's what God does want you to do with Romans 10. He wants you to think about the excuses that you've been living with. The excuses that you've been living with. Now, if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus for eternal life, you are still trying to either earn eternal life or you don't even believe in this whole eternal life thing and this God thing. If you have not yet received that gift of eternal life, then I would ask you, what is holding you back? What is your objection to the gospel? What's keeping you from receiving this free gift that Jesus has earned for you? I'd ask if you're willing, come talk to me or Eddie or someone here this morning about your objections. If they're an intellectual objection, I just can't believe that God exists or that Jesus rose from the dead or more of a practical objection, I just can't believe it's free. Surely I have to do something for this great gift. Come talk to someone this morning. We may not be able to solve your objection to answer it completely, but at least we can help you take another step. Now, for all of us who have received this gift, who have trusted in Jesus, this passage is also about removing our excuses. I don't know if you noticed verse one of chapter 10. What does Paul tell us there? Really interesting. Something that gets lost in this whole theological debate over election. Paul tells us election is no excuse for not praying for the unsaved. Yes, God elects people. They will only be saved if God elects them, but that does not excuse me from the need of praying constantly for those who don't yet know Christ. I am responsible to do that. God uses my prayers. He listens to my prayers. I have a friend who prayed for the salvation of her dad for decades. She prayed every day. She prayed with heartfelt longing for her dad's salvation, and finally God said yes. Now, okay, was the guy elect? We don't need to go there. Point is, she prayed and God said yes. God answered the prayer. He uses prayer. We are responsible to pray. Pray for those who don't yet know Jesus. Pray every day for them. Second, election does not excuse us of the responsibility to share. Do you notice that in verse 14? How will they believe if they do not hear? They need to hear it. They need to hear the gospel from us. God does not need us in the salvation thing, but he chooses to use us. That's God's preferred means. Yes, he can use an angel, a messenger, a Bible drop from a plane. He can do that thing, but he really doesn't want to. What does he want to do? He wants to use you as the necessary voice of the gospel to a person who doesn't yet know him. 
You have a necessary part to play in this thing. I can't reconcile that with election. I'm not called to do that. All I have to do is believe God has chosen to use me. I am responsible to share the gospel with everyone who doesn't know him. And so I want to end just with a moment of reflection. I want you to think for a moment. Who are the two or three people in your life? Maybe a family member, a friend, a coworker, a a fellow student. Who are the two or three people that God has brought into your life who don't yet know Christ? Have you been praying regularly for them? Have you been sharing the gospel or at least looking for opportunities to share the gospel? If not, what is your excuse? What's held you back? Romans 10 tells us we have no valid excuse. We need to step up and pray. We need to step up and share because God has chosen to use us. We are his means to draw these people to salvation. So we need to pray and we need to share. What will you do this week? Pray for that person and to share the good news with them. Let's pray and ask God to show us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that in grace you offer us eternal life as a free gift. Thank you so much, Lord, that it's not about what we do. Father, we confess if it was about what we do, none of us would ever merit eternal life. We are all sinners. Lord, we are in desperate need of you. Thank you that in your love, you sent your own beloved son, Jesus, to do what we could not to take our sins upon himself and die in our place. And then you raised him from the dead, conquering sin and death on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son. I pray for anyone in this room who has not yet believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. Please, Lord, let this morning be the moment of their salvation. Open their eyes to the truth and simplicity of the gospel. Help them to trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. And for those of us who have believed that message, Lord, I just pray, please, Lord, bring to our minds even this moment the faces, the names of a few people who you have moved into our lives who don't yet know your son. Please, Father, help us. Help us to care so deeply about these individuals that we will pray for them regularly and that we will look for every opportunity to share the gospel with them. We confess it is only you who can save them, so please, Lord, Use our prayers and empower our witness to draw these people to Christ. Our prayers for their salvation. We rejoice that you desire them to be saved. We rejoice that you sent your son to die for them. We thank you that you give them mercy. We pray that you would draw them to yourself. Thank you for the gift of your son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys.